At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail. We are those people. I'm Mike Bowden, just still joined by Joanna Marsh. And Joanna, what's happening with the Norfolk Southern train operations? I thought that was an interesting one that you reported on. Yeah, I know. You know, I, yeah, I, I'm, I think a lot of people are wondering exactly what's, what's going on because, you know, you had that one um, system outage in late August, um, and then there was a second one that apparently is unrelated to the one that happened in late August. And I'm not sure if it affected the same systems or, or, or different systems, but um, but it, yeah, either way, it, it, it disrupted um, um, train operations for a little while. Um, it happens, I think, sometime Friday evening. It lasts until very early Saturday morning. Um, but it, you know, it impacted mm -hmm. like uh, some dispatching and train movements and um, also the functionality of terminal operations. And so, um, uh -huh. yeah, they, they didn't say, um, quite, you know, I mean, other than saying that it wasn't, you know, cybersecurity related or, or it wasn't a hacking incident, um, and that it, it, it was unrelated to the late August when, um, they, they did mention something about like a, a vendor product defect. Um, so I'm not quite sure, uh -huh. you know, I mean, you know, beyond what they've said. Uh, exactly what <laughs> what all that means and and why did something happen um, so so soon after uh, that that other one that happened in August? Um, not to say that you should have something happening at all, but um, you know. <laughs> so so I don't know if NS will release more details or not later. Yeah, it was kind of like Norfolk Southern saying the the system is not operating well, but it's it's totally not our fault. 100 uh vendors mm -hmm. vendors fault uh, on that one um no i word on uh who, who the vendor is but what was interesting about this is in your article you said that this outage occurred on friday evening and it was resolved by 1 30 in the afternoon on saturday so not all that long but yeah. it could impact operations for, for oh i'm sorry yeah i think it was actually 1 30 in the morning so oh, 1 30 in the morning but, yeah, okay think, okay yeah, so really, yeah. It was just a yeah. few hours then yeah, that, that yeah, it was down. And in just a few hours of being down, systems outage, the impact could last at least a couple of weeks. Um, and, and that's what Norfolk Southern had in its um, service alert that it you know, publishes these service alerts on the website. Anyone can go, can, can go see that, whether you're a customer or not. And it just it just speaks to how, how these, these rail networks work. When there's some disruption, it causes all of these ripple effects. I mean, you can't just you know dispatch a train, and that causes you know makes it so that others can't you know go to those places because of congestion in in, in those places. So um, it, it just a two week disruption. So if you're a, a customer, you you should expect delays there. And what's also interesting is um, I went to 
the Norfolk Southern Investor Relations page, and they publish you know, all this data that's that's required um, every week. So they publish volume data, they publish uh, train speed data, they publish terminal dwell data. I didn't see much change in the velocity of the t- trains or the terminal dwell, maybe a little bit of an uptick in terminal dwell, but did see a significant change to um, the uh, the volume. And so in this this most recent week, they just po- posted the, the latest uh, data up there. They said merchandise traffic down 3% year over year. Well, that wasn't really a change. It was, it was, it's been down about 3% quarter to date. But on the intermodal side, they said intermodal in this latest week down 8.5%. And that's worse than what we've seen quarter to date. Quarter to date, it's down about 2%. So that intermodal is the, the portion of the volume that, if it's not moving, can go over to truck. And then the other portion that was, was down pretty significantly, even though it's not fungible across modes, is coal and coke down 21% this latest week, quarter to date, it's down 9.7%. So so clearly impact on some of the bulk franchises and some of the intermodal um, volume. So we're seeing that in in, in the data. So uh, something for um, kind of a bad news for for, for shippers, something that shippers need to pay pay attention to. I want to move on to the the next uh, topic here, which is the EEOC suing Union Pacific. have another... um, you know, good picture there of a locomotive. What's what's happening uh, with this? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So um, the equal, I, I, I can't remember the EEOC, but it's the, it's the federal agency for a sort of equal opportunity, um, ensuring that, you know, that there's no, um, that, that the companies uh, uh, provide equal employment opportunities. Um, there was a situation, it's, and it's, it's, it's happened over the course of the year um, where um, EEOC filed a lawsuit um, in the Minnesota District Court um, saying that Union Pacific uh, um, violated the American Disabilities Act, or ADA Act, or Americans with Disabilities Act, I think that's what it is. Um, and um, but 21 employees were affected, and uh, and it's because uh, there was um, there's a vision test that the um, employees, which consisted of train conductors and locomotive engineers, um, had failed, um, and so they took another test, and the second test was another vision test um, that UP created, and they failed that test, um, and these employees. Um, well, because they failed those tests, um, UP, uh, they, they could no longer um, function in their in their roles, um, even though I think, according to the lawsuit, some of them, um, you know, ha- have been working, I mean, well, all of them have been working at UP. I think the, the, the shortest tenure was two years, but, you know, it kind of goes beyond two years after that. So, um, uh, so, uh, I think these individuals, um, you know, sort of approached EEOC, and um, and they um, EEOC and UP have been uh, trying to sort of negotiate um, kind of what the situation is, and apparently these negotiations um, didn't uh, turn out the way that the employees want, had wanted, and so now you have this lawsuit here, um, and um, UP is saying right now, you know, that they're uh, that they're vision tests um, are, uh, you know, that they comply with um, FRA standards. Um, and uh, But the lawsuit is arguing that the vision tests that UP 
um, created um, doesn't necessarily reflect uh, the employee's ability to to read railway signals. So that's the situation there. Yeah, so it seems like in this situation, I'd be more sympathetic to the railroad because the, the FRA, Federal Railroad Administration, that's the agency in charge of railroad safety, right? So it seems like if Union Pacific does not comply with the FRA guidelines and continues to employ people who fail to meet the FRA standards, and then there is some terrible incident, you know, someone dies on the, on, on the track, it seems like then Union Pacific has opened up to wrongful death lawsuits and the lawyers would argue you knowingly uh, employed someone who failed to meet the federal guidelines for safety and and for 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 you know then the, those are the guidelines right so it, it just seems to me that Union Pacific they're going to be potentially sued whether they continue to employ these people or not um, and and it was two tests so it was the FRA test that they failed and then the Union Pacific did its own test that's was still in court it's still in compliance with FRA guidelines and then they failed that test again so there's kind of sort of two lines of defense there that were that were missed is, is that what happened yeah for the most part i think that's my understanding anyway um uh just at least reading up's response to it uh which is that i, I think there's an initial vision test and then if you don't if you don't pass mm-hmm. that one then, then there's another test um and so i guess it, it's whether uh you know the passing that second test and I, I guess you know their argument is is that you know they've, they've been um, working in their jobs for a while. Um, and so, uh, and so this, you know, does this test, um, you know, d- does, uh, I, I don't want to say that are the results like invalid, but, you know, but, you know, considering that they have been working in, in those roles, um, uh, do they, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I feel like that that the work experience comes into play in terms of this this visual this vision test question, but um, but I mean it was just it's a it's a pretty brand new lawsuit, so um, uh, I think it was I think they filed it in like late September, so I, I think UP will I mean UP hasn't responded officially like in the lawsuit yet, so um, I'm not sure you know we'll see what their what their argument is um, beyond of course what they what they're seeing now, which is you know that the test that they have administered is, is, you know, is, is proved by the FRA. So. Interesting. It does seem like you'd need a C to, to, to do that job. And, yeah, uh, yeah. even if they were in that job, even if they're in that position for a while, I mean, imagine a truck driver who has 30 years of experience and now he's legally blind, probably shouldn't be driving a truck, but, um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, it's kind of my take, yeah. uh, the next, uh, topic here, which has a, a very good picture from, from, um, Jim, uh, Allen, um, with, uh, VNSF. That's a pretty one there over some, some body of water. BNSF and train conductors um, reunion reached a scheduling deal. And so this has been a big topic ever since, you know, all those negotiations last year, all the stuff about the, the railroad workers not being able to take a sick day, uh, having to work when they're sick, not being able to take off for, for bereavement, all of those things. And now it seems like they've got a pretty good amount of uh, vacation time. Would, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting um arrangement because, you know, interesting tentative deal. Of course, it still has to be approved by, uh, by the, um, the membership, the union membership, but, um, but it is interesting considering that, uh, you know, 
prior to this work scheduling agreement, there was the issue of attendance policies with BNSF. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I guess it was <laughs> the, the years all kind of blend together. I guess it was 2021, perhaps, um, where you know BNSF um, had instituted this this uh, new attend or uh, modified its attendance policy. Um, uh, their argument was that you know it would help with predictability in terms of like being able to uh, um, ensure that you know there, there, that there's crew available to you know to to move things, um, and uh, and then but the unions thought it was too punitive and, and actually um, the unions took it to court where um, you know they were trying to see if they could uh, go on strike because of this attendance policy and and the. Um, and the judge ruled that no, you can't, you can't go on strike because of this. And so they eventually um, reached some sort of, I don't know if it's agreement, but some sort of compromise, I guess, in terms of the, the attendance policy. Um, so, so you have that his, that recent history of um, of that antag- antagonism between BNSF and, and the unions over over leave. Um, so it is kind of neat to, to see this. Um, to see this uh, tentative agreement um, and and just the the different um, uh, additional initiatives that are in the agreement, um, uh, so yeah, and the I think the the union was pretty positive about. I mean, at least you know everyone mm-hmm. kind of puts a positive spin on things in, in press releases, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, but yeah, even between the lines, it seems that there was more positive language. Um, uh, then perhaps maybe you know some other agreements where it's uh, I don't know <laughs> the, the the praise isn't as um, you know effusive. So yeah, it seems like the union wants the workers to um, to ratify this one, and it sort of went like we went from having the discussion being about how awful the railroad workers have it during the, during all those negotiations to now you have all these bullet points laid out, and it was like for, for employees that have twenty five years of experience a sixth week of vacation time. And that really stood out to me. I'm like, they had five weeks of vacation time before now six. I mean, that's more than 10% of the, of, of the weeks in, in a year or two floating weeks off time off for bereavement. So they sort of got one from, Oh, how awful they have it to, um, you know, now it's great to, to, to be a worker. It's almost like, you know, go, you should go be a conductor have all, all, this, all this time off and, and things sounds pretty good. Um, I want to hit another one, and this was was one that you, I don't think you had a chance to, to write up yet, but I think this this, this caught my attention. Is the rails uh, were granted a little bit more time, not a tremendous amount more time, a little bit more time to submit reciprocal switching comments. We've talked about this on prior shows, went into this in quite a bit of detail, where we talked about them uh, being able to uh, you know submit comments up until about what was it the, in October, um, sometime in October, and now it's. November seventh, which happens to coincide with the with the freight waves, uh, you know, conference. So get your your comments in uh, before going to the, the to the freight waves, uh, you know, conference. But the, the AAR wanted this to be extended all the way to um, to February second. They were asking for a ninety day to, to extension, and it just seemed like because they don't like the reciprocal switching idea, just trying to kick the can down the road is. As, as much as possible, maybe until there's, you know, I, I don't know, not necessarily a new STB, but just, you know, m- until something else comes along, sort of d- just sort of delay, delay, delay. But uh, what did you make of that? Yeah, that, that was interesting. Um, uh, you know, I, mean, I guess every, <laughs> I guess every little bit of time helps. Um, uh, yeah, the, 
you know, kind of se- separately, but but related. Um, I'm, I'm kind of working on a story right now about how um, two senators, uh, you know, Tam- Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin and then Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, you know, how they're um, how they sent a letter to um, STB Chairman Marty Oberman about, uh, you know, you know, making let's make sure that you know we <laughs> we uh, move forward with a, a reciprocal switching rule. Um, uh, so, mm-hmm. in other words, you have you know uh, some senators, uh, especially you know um, Senator Baldwin, who has been you know an advocate for rail shippers, um, kind of you know mm-hmm. watching uh, what's going on with this proceeding. Um, so, yeah, I'm not quite sure, you know, what, uh, what, what the, with the extra time, um, you know, how much, so it's, an, it's not a lot of extra time. It's probably about three weeks worth maybe, but, um, but I, you know, I suppose, um, for the rails, I, I guess any, <laughs> any extra time is, is better than nothing in that case. Um, and, uh, and I was wondering actually what would happen, uh, you know, with the, it, it seems like, you know, not to sort of thinking about the government shutdown i mean you know government there'd be like a, a possibility of another government shutdown but you know if, if there another one happens like this is before before or after um <laughs> the the a possible second shutdown you know um or that's you know not the shut you know uh i think how was it the continual resolution for the shutdown i think it's like sometime in mid-november so um uh yeah so yeah it, it's it is interesting that there was that extra um, time for the railroads. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they need the extra time. We know exactly what the class one railroads are going to say about it, and then we know exactly the arguments they're going to make. So um, it, it, it's just to, to, to delay something they don't like, I think. Um, you have about eight minutes left. want to hit some uh, highlights in FreightWave Sonar. So it's a data product that we have here. At FreightWaves, this first one is going to be the outbound uh, domestic uh, container volume. So intermodal volume, if we can get that on the screen, and, and, and there it is. And this is an interesting one. Uh, this is loaded 53-foot containers, so domestic, intermodal. And I'm limiting this to those containers that are loaded, so excluding any revenue empties. When you look at the AAR data that comes out every week and that once they pack it, uh, it conflates. Domestic and international, even though there's really two different segments, and it conflates uh, loaded containers and empty containers. I'm looking here just at domestic and loaded. So this is going to be JB Hunt's, uh, you know, main market and intermodal, Schneider's, etc. And and you do see that, you know, that that pick up uh, quite a bit there in uh, the most recent week, and um, that's you know really been up. Let's call it four percent, um, you know, year over year, and also about four percent of an increase since. You know, looking at, uh, at at early August, and so um, you know some seasonal improvements certainly. And for all the the talk about not having uh, a peak season, there there is there is some positive seasonality here, and more shippers are, I think, being encouraged to use intermodal. Heard from one uh, big retailer that uses our data s- uh, system that said that. You know, they really hadn't used intermodal before, but uh, some of the intermodal companies, some of those domestic intermodal companies came to them and, and tried to say, you know, we move your truckload volumes. Some of this would work well in our intermodal network. A lot of those big intermodal companies, they have a lot of excess containers because they've taken delivery of a lot of containers this year and last and want to keep those, uh, you know, utilized. But but are seeing that in 
the data. And that also says to me, when you see a volume um, rise like that in, in domestic loaded, it's not just uh, you know demand improving, it's it's also service because a lot of that is, is really fungible. I mentioned earlier about how Norfolk Southern's intermodal volume dropped in the past in the past week, down 8% instead of being down, you know, 2%. And that's because with that shutdown, you know, server, they basically signaled to the market, service is going to be worse for the next uh, couple of uh, weeks. That does look a little bit better than international intermodal uh, volume, which you have a chart on that also, even though that's uh, Im- improved a little bit as, as well. You see that white line is 2023 uh, data, which is um, kind of pretty remarkably in line with 2021. Uh, and also uh, 2022, um, you know, which you know started to have you know weakness, uh, sort of in in imports, maybe in the middle of 2021. So those uh, kind of in line with reduced expectations. I don't think anyone expects it near term to get back to that green li- or that that orange line, which represents 2020, which is an extraordinarily uh, tight year for uh, transportation capacity and a tremendous amount of volume coming in there. I uh, also want to show the international, the intermodal contract uh, rates, which have a chart. Uh, there it is. And this is one I mentioned this last week and, you know, nothing's really changed in the last uh, you know week. I mean, there's, you see in this chart, a lot of ups and downs from one week to the next, but really that's a lot of, of mix. I think the main trend here is that intermodal contract rates are down well into the double digits when you compare to 2022. Now it was, against a very um, kind of difficult comp or easy comp, if you, you know, depending on your perspective, uh, from 2020 to 2021, intermodal contract rates, these are all excluding fuel surcharge, by the way, increased double digit percentage, then increased another double digit percentage from 21 to 22. That's gone the other way, you know, this year and uh, sort of in, in total down um, anywhere from, let's say 15 to 20% on average. I've heard from some shippers that just put their freight out to bid, um, and they're on an annual bid cycle, that their rates are down more like 30%. Now, some of these are really big shippers, so they, they're really bringing a lot of volume uh, to the table, um, but also sort of had the caveat that the intermodal volume that is with asset-based carriers, you're seeing steeper reductions in rates versus the non-asset-based. So I thought that was an important uh, you know, point I also want to show an intermodal chart on the intermodal contract uh, savings index, which is uh, an interesting one there. If we can get the, that that on the on the on the slide, and and what this shows is that that white line is the savings or difference between intermodal contracts contract rates and truckload contract rates when fuel is included in both modes. That's important because intermodal there's less uh, you know, fuel surcharge, about half the fuel surcharge. And, and what that shows is 9.76% discount on intermodal. And we're using a uniform five-digit origin and destination pair. So in most cases, it's the same shippers, shipper moving the same, uh, you know, in between the same facilities, origin destination, they're getting just under a 10% uh, lower rate um, on intermodal is sort of at the low end of that sort of 10 to 15% historical range uh, when you sort of think about the intermodal uh, discount. And then that blue line limits it to uh, uh, lengths of haul uh, that exceed 1,200 miles. So it's, you know, I would say it's a competitive, uh, you know, marketplace, but maybe getting a little bit less competitive because some of the truckload uh, volume or truckload volume has improved. Some uh, the truckload market has tightened up a little bit for long haul outbound uh loads 
have another chart on intermodal rates from Los Angeles to Dallas. And these are, are uh, spot rates here. And what's, what's interesting is these are published intermodal uh, spot rates in white from LA to Dallas. So these come from the class one railroads. Uh, they give it to a domestic intermodal company, uh, give it to us. And they cut that rate on from LA to Dallas from almost 225 to $1.57. Meanwhile, the truckload rates and, and that particular rate is from truckstop.com. We have other you know proprietary rates that, that, that um, in our system, but show a similar pattern here at $2.19. And so, so it seems like the two modes getting a little less competitive uh, for that uh, rather dense um, intermodal lane, LA to Dallas. Uh, it's really the, the second you know densest one outside of LA to, to Chicago. And a big part of that is what's uh, changing a little bit in the uh, truckload market, which have the, the next uh, sonar chart, um, the long haul outbound tender volume index. And this is gonna be the last one. This shows that the, the truckload market has improved from the carrier's perspective. Yeah, you see the, the volume of tenders is in white and that has risen um, for, for, and I'm limiting this to just long haul volume. So volume that exceeds 800 miles doing that because that's uh, more relevant when we're talking about intermodal is, is just look at the long haul uh, volume. And so there's been more demand to move long haul volume. You see about um, th that index has gone from about 50 to one 17. So it's really been a big increase. And then the tender rejection rate for long haul volume that's outbound from LA declined from, you know, about two or 3% to 7.59. So there has been some tightening there. It's made the truckload market less competitive with the intermodal market. And that's part of why we're seeing intermodal volume, uh, you know, pick up. So that's um, what I have. That's, that's interesting. And uh, with that, uh, Joanna, what uh, are you working on? for the next week. Yeah, those are pretty neat charts. Um, let's see. So I'm going to be uh, speaking with the Sierra Club. Uh, they had produced a um, a report actually in, in August, but, uh, but you know, it's still pertinent. It was just kind of talking about um, freight rail transportation and, and, and actually how um, the U.S. needs to utilize freight rail more than it does um you know the idea that it's good for the environment um so uh you know which which on one yeah makes sense but on the other hand it's interesting too because you know it's, it's also the sierra club so i'm um, just gonna get mm -hmm. some more um hopefully some some more uh uh comments from them about you know like sort of uh what, what they um who they're working with what they hope to achieve and, and things like that so that's what's happening there and and of course actually earning seasons is, is coming up pretty soon um in about two weeks or so uh so uh -huh. getting ready for that yeah that's always fun get ready for 100 <laughs> questions about the operating uh ratio uh, <laughs> yeah with that uh, we're about out of time i uh, hope everyone has a great uh day and see you next week